0: Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest has been a long time. This has been a long time coming. Kimberly Price is a cybersecurity executive who's been in the trenches for, gosh, many, many years. Uh, My career kind of coincides with yours. Um, What's going on with you lately? You just announced, we're recording this on July 10th. You just announced that you'd been part of unfortunate layoffs at New Relic. Yes. How would you describe the environment we're in today, just uh, with that little bit of nugget and a little bit of news thing you know. here. Uh,
1: the environment we're in today is really weird. So if you're in security, um, tons of companies are hiring still. There's lots of jobs out there. Um, but what's kind of weird is a lot of the jobs seem to be looking for three people in one. <laughs> or right. um, So it's it's interesting. I've seen a lot of job descriptions come across my plate. I've been very, very fortunate to have a huge response to my announcement that, hey, I'm a free agent and I'm considering what I'm going to do next. And people have been sending me tons of of job leads. And I'd say about 70% of them I'm forwarding on to someone I know in my network that I actually think is a better fit for the job than me. Um, But some of them, I just give them feedback where I'm like, you're, you're looking for something that doesn't exist. You're looking for ABSEC, security response, CISO, IT, all in one for like a two year in career experience salary. Like it's, it's just not going to happen for you. And, and so I've been trying to give companies a little bit of feedback on what you're looking for at the price point you're looking for and what's realistic for you.
0: Um, but you feel like, do you feel though that it's like a, it's become a, a, a buyer's market? It, it's, the, the balance has shifted from, oh, we have a cybersecurity skills shortage. Everyone is hiring. People are demanding exorbitant, sa- not exorbitant salaries, but people are having like bigger demands than normal times. Has the balance shifted? And I know you're coming from an environment where you were just running a team at New Relic and doing a lot of hiring. Yes. Now you're on the other side of it just temporarily. Help me understand your, your thinking as to what the job market looks like.
1: I I ran an 18-person organization at New Relic. I managed managers. We hired uh, almost all of that team in the last year, year and a half that I was there. So we built the program from the ground up. And uh, in 2021 and 2022, you're right, it was a very different market. And the current economic situation has shifted to put more power in the hands of the employer. Um, There are a lot of people who uh, maybe are less happy in their jobs and would just be like, you know what, I'm going to jump, I'm going to find something new, but they want to find that something new first. Um, there's a little more insecurity still in, in the sense of, you know, I, I do appreciate being able to pay my bills. Um, so it's, it's a little tougher, um, especially in, uh, you know, earlier in career roles. Um, I think the program, the operational security program manager is a little tougher of a role um, to find jobs for right now versus the AppSec, pen tester, um, you know, vulnerability analyst. There's still a lot of companies hiring individual contributors there. I'm seeing a lot of manager roles still open. Um, but yeah, it is a little tougher because uh, there are fewer companies hiring, but there are still companies hiring.
0: How should people navigate this world in your, uh, how if you were to help your peers kind of navigate this changing dynamic? if you're a job seeker, what's the priority now because you said people are still hiring. I see Google announcing they're hiring after having all these massive layoffs so it's kind of this weird thing how do How does a job seeker kind of figure out where's the, who's hiring what's the best landing spot, and how do I kind of temper my expectations in this time
1: um having a good LinkedIn profile and a good resume is always helpful. Um, it is generally worth the money to to hire a consultant to help you polish that because people are really bad at talking about what they're good at. But um, what a good resume consultant will do is is more or less interview you about what you've done, and then they'll repackage that in a way that really sells your superpowers, um, and and so that really helps get your foot in the door. But Even more than that, networking, 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 leverage the people you know in your industry, um, actively post on LinkedIn about not just that you're looking for a job, but relevant security topics that will generate uh, momentum towards your profile. It's a little bit of personal brand marketing to, to showcase that, yes, I know what I'm talking about and people agree that I know what I'm talking about and respect what I'm talking about. And don't you want me to come give you that where you work? Like I, I could bring my secret sauce to your workplace. I could help you be better. Um, and look, here's all all that stuff becomes
0: very important, right? It becomes very important. Your own kind of personal brand as you navigate this world, how, how you recognize how your, you know, your LinkedIn shows, how your Twitter shows, all that stuff is important.
1: And it's exhausting. Um, even for, so, uh, everyone assumes I'm an extrovert. Uh, I am not. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am just as much introvert as I am extrovert, and it's exhausting, and it feels weird. It's like, I should just do the good work, and people should recognize that. But nobody knows you're doing the good work if you right. don't go talk about it. And, and what's weird is that this is not just relevant in finding a new job, but in being successful in your job. If you're doing great vulnerability research, if you're doing great AppSec work, but no one in your leadership chain knows about it, it actually can put you at uh, a su- substantial disadvantage for promotions, for new career opportunities, um, just for that recognition that makes sure you get that great bonus when the economy improves um uh you you want to make sure people know what you're working on and why it's impactful so it's a good skill to practice whether you're job hunting or not
0: you mentioned being an introvert but you've also like made a, a name for yourself as a community engagement expert for uh, uh, for big brands and helping big brands understand how that is, has to be managed and like uh you know, ideal ways of pursuing community uh, uh, engagement. I want to go all the way back to your MSRC days. I think we met in the early days, uh, not the early days, in the mid-2000s, I want to say, when the MSRC was at the uh, the height of micro- Microsoft's kind of forward face on security, right? And we were coming out of a warm era into XP Service Pack 2 and right around XP Service Pack 2 around Vista release, Microsoft made a significant investment in community engagement, managing the conversation around vulnerability disclosure, and basically trying to get ahead of what had become a stain on its reputation. When you go back to those days, what were some of the early memories of getting the MSRC set up to manage that, and can you help me understand how that supported Microsoft's marketing and public relations and kind of visibility efforts?
1: Absolutely. So it's interesting because by the time you and I met, I'd been building the community program at Microsoft for a couple of years. It started fairly quiet as it should, honestly. Um, so I started in Microsoft Security Response Center in 2003. What prompted it? Uh, they were getting their butt kicked on full disclosure all the time. Um, there was no Twitter
0: uh, a picture of what, yeah. what the environment <laughs> looked like.
1: Yeah. So way back in 2003, when there was no <laughs> Twitter, um, there were no iPhones. Uh, there was this mailing list called full disclosure and there, there were people who would find security vulnerabilities in Microsoft products and Uh, Maybe they would report them to the Microsoft Security Response Center, secure at microsoft.com. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they'd go to full disclosure and publish about this vulnerability. And Microsoft customers would panic and freak out about these vulnerabilities. Um, And so Microsoft was frequently finding themselves on the back foot, both from a security investigation perspective, but also a PR perspective. And there was a really, really high support cost because when something hits the press, you have to treat it like a crisis and spin up uh, a bunch of resources that maybe aren't really necessary. Maybe it's more bluster than, you know, actual risk. And so my role was to Understand what is it that motivates researchers and build better relationships. And so, for those first years before we met, we were, you know, I was building out okay, what is it that motivates researchers? What are these behavioral profiles? And there were different profiles. It's not one size fits all. Some researchers were motivated by getting that credit in the um, bulletin Bulletin, and and having the axe in there and some researchers were really motivated by learning opportunities and so you know i might give people msdn licenses or software it's like hey you're finding all these great vulnerabilities in a version of windows that isn't in support or is about to go out of support can I get you the most recent version of Windows so you could do research there? Because sometimes it was an accessibility to technology issue to help them work on the right things. And they would be so appreciative. They'd be like, yeah, that'd be great. Because uh, they are really passionate about finding these issues. But what was interesting was as we were trying to get researchers to work with Microsoft, the culture in Microsoft started changing as well, where uh, I was, and, and it took time Uh, to get Microsoft employees in the MSRC to realize the researchers aren't the bad guys. Just because they're going to full disclosure doesn't make them the enemy. If they were the bad guys, they'd be using the vulnerabilities. They wouldn't tell you about them at all. So uh, the culture at Microsoft changed as well. And so I was...
0: And just to interrupt you there, in yeah. fairness, a lot of the guys who are going to full disclosure and going the full disclosure route had had problems with Microsoft in terms of getting them to respond in a timely mm-hmm. manner, getting them to fix issues. Mm-hmm. In, in many ways, withholding uh, uh, that little bit of attribution in a bulletin is mm-hmm. kind of like this, you know, wand of thing over their head. So a, a lot of the fights in those days you are talking about were were partially microsoft had oh yeah. partial blame there so a lot of what you're talking about <laughs> educating microsoft internally it had its roots in what the researchers were dealing with
1: absolutely and so it's really interesting because back in those days uh it wasn't coordinated vulnerability disclosure it was called responsible disclosure which has oh, all these oh, yeah. moral connotations to it and um but all the responsibility seemed to be on the researcher, not on the vendor. And um, and so if you went. Not, not unique to Microsoft data, you know, no, across the board. No, I mean, there, so, oh my gosh, the, the first disclosure framework was written by a researcher. Rainforest Puppy wrote uh, Rainfo- RFP 2.0. Well, I'm sure there was a 1.0, but 2.0 is the one that was known as the first disclosure policy came from the security research community. And then the vendors all got together and created the OIS framework, which was just as unwieldy and bureaucratic as you could imagine a bunch of software vendors in the early 2000s writing,
0: right.
1: um, not user-friendly uh, very little you know, responsibility on their part. And, and that gets followed by industry standards. Um, and, and so it evolves over time. It's no longer called responsible disclosure. But even today, 20 years later, full disclosure is sometimes the strongest tool a researcher has to get a vendor to do the right thing or to do anything. Um, and, And so it was used heavily in 2003, 2004, even before that. For researcher, for I'm sorry, for vendors that were being unresponsive, that were saying this isn't a security thing, um, you're wrong, um, or or just not sharing any information about the status of the fix, or it's like I've reported a, a vulnerability to you, you've gone radio silent, you're giving me no updates. I guess you don't care, and let me go publish it because the vendors, not just Microsoft but all the vendors had real trust issues with telling a researcher anything. And and it was just a very very unhealthy dynamic and it's it's changed so much in the last 20 years which is fantastic to see but I mean it was two years of building one-to-one relationships And doing small researcher events um, where we'd bring like three or four researchers to Redmond to, to meet a specific product team doing the annual black hat party, which was organized by uh, one of my Mm -hmm. colleagues. And before we even got to the point of having a blue hat, like if we had tried to do that in 2003, no one would have come and Microsoft wouldn't have funded it. Like it took time to even get there. So by the time you and I met um, there, there'd been a lot of foundation work laid because you can't fix trust in one fiscal year.
0: Yeah. What was harder? Uh, 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 Community engagement and getting buy-in from researchers or internal engagement and getting buy-in from execs at Microsoft around this issue of, you know what? It's okay for us to bring in hackers to a blue hat. It's okay for them to drop a vulnerability here or to criticize us here. Or it's okay for our executives to share information with them. Was that a hard sell for you guys? And it wasn't only you. I give credit to Window Snyder, yeah. uh, 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 Katie Masuris, a lot of the folks from that era that really did a lot of the heavy lifting, not only with the external community but internally. Talk a little bit about those battles.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because there's so many things that Katie and Window and I have done in our careers. Um, so when I was building out the community program, Window was running. Uh, the bug war room for, you know, for Windows. And she was in there working with the dev teams to, you know, discuss, no, you really do need to fix this one. Like, let's talk about bug priority. Let's talk about scheduling Um, because you can't fix everything. So she was there in the trenches helping them decide what to fix. But what people really remember of her time at Microsoft is that she founded Blue Hat. So, so she does all these amazing things. Uh, Katie came after me. So I had left the community program. Katie came and joined and she became, you know, the, the genesis of bug bounties at Microsoft and, you know, five, six, seven years later, there are people who just conflate the two of us and are like, Oh, did you work for Katie or did Katie work for you? And it's like, we didn't even work together at the same time. (laughs) Um, But but so many, uh, so many people have touched the community programs at Microsoft, whether that's, you know, back in the old days, Ian Mulholland was, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think he's at Google now, um, but he was really instrumental in the Microsoft Security Response Center and recognizing, no, we need to build these relationships. We need to change the way we think about these things um, because at the end of the day, it's the right thing for the customer. Let's take our egos out of it, that, yes, these researchers are finding finding flaws in our software, and that feels really crappy. Um, and maybe they're not always right about everything, but we even when they're wrong, we don't have to rub their noses in it because at the end of the day, it's not about our egos. It's about how do we help protect the customer, How do we improve the quality of the software? And I mean, there's right. countless others over the years I would I couldn't possibly think. T- like Mike Reevy, Matt Tomlinson, like there's so many people that had a hand in this. Um, but I, I would say the hard all went
0: on to have great careers too. I yes. feel like the Microsoft, uh, the MSRC was a good starting point for folks in their careers. F- folks went on to be CISOs, running security programs all over the uh, uh, all over the place. So I feel like uh, you know you guys were really really in a in a, in a perfect spot to watch this thing uh, bloom. Well, uh, f- as a journalist. Sorry, go ahead. I was
1: just gonna say, in some ways, it's similar to how you see people from at stake, like seated across the industry. Because back oh, there
0: is the RC mafia. You know, yeah, sure.
1: but <laughs> there there wasn't a lot of security jobs back then. And so right. they had to come from somewhere.
0: <laughs> so And they came from the place that had the experienced folks who had right. been in the trenches doing that stuff. One of the things as a journalist looking into Microsoft from the outside, I feel like the, the narrative started to change towards the end of the 2000s when, you know, you guys would show up at Ponto Own and sit there in Vancouver in that little room and kind of just, you know, collect old days on the site. And, and it, it became this, I don't want to say it became this this perfectly in sync thing, but it felt like Microsoft had become this trendsetter. We've been at Pariah for many years and it kind of become a trendsetter in how to manage this thing. I don't know how much of it was PR and marketing, how much of it was, you know, Microsoft's own power, but legitimately it felt from the outside that there was a genuine attempt or a genuine narrative change around Microsoft. Uh, When did you feel that all this community engagement efforts had started to work?
1: I knew it started to work by the second blue hat. Um, The first blue hat was a little bit of a crapshoot. We weren't sure anyone would come on either side. We didn't know if the researchers would come. We knew that the people that we invited to speak would because we we were covering their airfare and like they were coming. We got their hotel, they're coming. They're going to come speak. We had no idea if Microsoft employees would actually show up. We knew they registered but it was free training and it was entirely possible that no one would actually show up to the conference center um, for that day and we had no idea what would happen when we put the speakers in front of jim alchin and a bunch of vice presidents at microsoft so that was the first day was the executive day and um, that was scary and a little nerve-wracking and and our pr team was adamant that he, nobody talks about blue hat outside of microsoft nobody talks to the press yeah, it's a big it's secret, a secret. and then jim alchin uh accident acc- accidentally i don't know jim alchin was a senior vice president and he could tell anybody kind of whatever he wanted and he told ina freed about it from cnet I yes <laughs> and honestly i was i was so stoked i'm like all right i didn't get in trouble uh, for telling the press the press just found out and and this is awesome this is awesome i this definitely I means so we're going to get we're going to get to do a
0: second all right i was <laughs> so glad you brought up this story because i had gotten wind of this like, this my i was working at eweek at the time Freed was a competitor of mine. I had gotten wind of Microsoft doing this hacker conference and bringing in hackers to talk to executives, and was was asked to hold off on the story, only to see Ina Fried get this big, long feature story. It was kind of like, a
1: am oh, so sorry.
0: Thing. No, no, no. <laughs> but but I that that became like a really interesting tipping point because not only were you getting uh, uh, security researchers and people doing the important work, but you were getting the the credible ones, the big name ones who were part of the very strong anti Microsoft messaging from before to come in and speak. And I remember, this, by the time the second or the third one came around, it became kind of oh, I have to get a blue hat invite. I mean, you guys were able to to, to, to spin uh, uh, to you know secure that credibility. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. what went in there? So um,
1: I, there are different ways to do community programs. I'm going to get to answering your question, but there are different ways to do community programs. Some community programs come out of A marketing budget and a marketing division. And Microsoft's community program has always been in the MSRC engineering team. And so, you know, I just a few minutes ago was talking about you need to communicate what you're doing so you can get like credit for it with your leaders. But we never did Blue Hat and we never did community for press. We never did it to show off how could how cool how good Microsoft was? It was very much focused on how do we get the best engineering outcomes, and then there was like maybe there was a PR team that was going to want to talk about it at Microsoft, and we would just you know do what we could to make sure that the way it was messaged wasn't going to shoot us in the foot because researchers uh, security security people hate marketing and they hate PR and they get very put off by it. And so the first few blue hats, we didn't allow journalists to attend at all because that's not what it was about. It wasn't come look at Microsoft. We're so cool. It was, Hey, here are some of the best researchers in the industry doing relevant security work. And I can't take every, every developer from Microsoft and go to black hat or to RSA or to TourCon or CanSec. So, what if I cherry pick some of the best researchers, maybe even some of the researchers who are really critical of Microsoft, and bring them to us? And my only requirement uh, for those speakers was you can get up on stage and tell a room full of Microsoft developers and executives how much we suck. But you have to tell us how we should have done it better because it's really easy to criticize, but I want to know what would you have done differently? And they were all like, Oh God. Like, and I'm like, well, I mean, but the goal is to help us get better. And they said that was actually the hardest part was it was really easy to criticize. It was much harder to be like, well, here's what you should have done differently. And there's, uh, there's a Dan Kaminsky story that I'm going to tell on his behalf, if you don't mind which was he was speaking at uh, a blue, the first Blue Hat and he got up and he's at, like, you know, this thing that you did, it was so dumb. I don't understand why you did it. Like you should have done this other thing instead. And literally someone in the audience stood up and was like, yeah, that's my feature. And I would love to talk to you after this. And Dan was like, you've ruined me for every conference now. I've never had someone get up and say, oh, I can fix that. Let's talk. Um, yeah. And that's what we were trying to accomplish there, not uh, you know, not, the, not the journalism.
0: One of the things about community engagement and community building, and you and I have worked uh, kind of tangentially in this area for a long time, is that it can't ever end, Right. And there's this tendency of thinking it's fixed because of all this efforts, all this work that's gone into it. Things have quietened down. The researchers are kind of understanding of what we're dealing with. So, okay, it's fixed. And the investment and efforts into community building cannot stop. How do you advise a company to get past that kind of mental hurdle of, yeah, it's fixed? when it's only fixed because of all these efforts that continue to be ongoing and have to be ongoing? Help me understand understand how you pitch that to executives.
1: Okay, so first off, this isn't specific to community. This is the same problem you have with your AppSec program. It's like, we've instrumented all of these scanning tools on your source code, and we're filing all these bugs. And I have had an engineering vice president asked me with complete sincerity, when is security going to be done filing bugs? And, and it was so hard not to openly laugh at them and be like, what I wanted to say is, when are you archiving the repo? Like, I- I right. <laughs> like we will continue to scan and we will continue to find bugs and you may have a really big bug backlog and we're going to help you burn that down and we're going to help you prioritize and we're going to help you design mitigations, but we will never be done. We will always have to train your developers. We will always have to run code scanning tools. We will always have to do secure design. And that is true of community as well. And so whether it's community or AppSec. um, I keep seeing organizational pendulum swings where things get really bad. You see this every time a company has a mm. breach and then there's 15
0: new security jobs posted on their website. And they're sponsoring every security conference. And all of a sudden they're right. their CISO is speaking here and like you start to see this sudden dramatic effort to address it.
1: Right. But their security team was probably internally raising alarms for quite some time before that. And the the feedback they were getting was that they were being chicken little that like, that's not really going to happen. Like, um, and so there's this constant tension between the business needs of, we need to innovate. We need to release new features. We need to reduce cogs. We need to increase revenue. And so the security team, they want perfect and they've got all these doomsday scenarios. And, and so there's this constant tension And so uh, the reality is even in a community program, in a response program, in an AppSec program, it is going to wax and wane. It is going to get good and then it is going to get taken for granted and then it is going to get bad and then it'll get reinvested in and it'll get good again. And so that's the thing I see Um, whether, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's any company, Google goes through phases of good and bad. Apple goes through phases of good and bad. Every company has that. And so um, what's hard is that that is at the macro level. And the individual researchers, they're they're individuals. They have personal memories. And so if you've been, if your only experience with a vendor has been negative Or if you're the developer and your only experience with the security team has been negative, that sets your foundation for moving forward. You don't have those trust deposits in the bank where you're like, hey, this person, this vendor, this organization did something kind of crappy. That's unusual. Like for the last two years, everything's been pretty cool. This is an outlier. It's your only data point. And it's like, wow, these people are terrible. And that is so much harder to get back to good. And so the security researchers that are coming onto the scene in one of those down cycles of a community program will be much harder to win over than the people who had a good experience in the past. Hey, you guys are kind of off your game right now and then can get back to good.
0: I wanted to pick your brain and get your opinion on the evolution of bug bounties. Because again, you were kind of at the the, the, the beginning of that. I remember when these things were controversial. I remember when I defense at VRP and it was like the most controversial thing ever. I was opposed I to writing, them. <laughs> yeah, I remember writing stories that Microsoft will never pay for bugs. We eventually... Got to the stage where uh, Katie did the Blue Hat Prize. Mm-hmm. Microsoft had actually had a bounty for, I believe, some editions and, and like, yes, correct. And we and you were there at Bug Crowd when that whole industry kind of yeah. started to uh, uh, mushroom. Uh, t- can you take me back to that time? In what was wh- what was in your mind about the future of bugs? purchasing bugs disclosure how it would affect things and I want to put you back there because I want to ask you now to fast forward to 2023 and uh, like the promise and the, the you know the, the the value of bug bounties did we get what we were supposed to get out of it help me understand how it's evolved over the years
1: so when I when I started building the community program at Microsoft in 03, I put together a pitch that I took to my boss at the time Steve Lipner, and I was like, Dr. Steve, yes, we should, we should do a bug bounty on beta software and like pay like net, uh, Netscape, Netscape,
0: there was, there was Netscape, uh, an early yeah. $500 bounty on, yeah. on bugs coming in for that browser. Yeah.
1: Right. And he, and, and I will forever and ever love this about Steve. I was early in career and I was changing fields. My background is behavioral psychology and public health education. So here I am. In that's
0: where you got your degree in, right?
1: Right. And so here I am in security at Microsoft. And he didn't just say, "No, that's a dumb idea." He said, "Here's some things to go do some research on. I'd love to hear what you think after that." And so then I went and did a ton of research on the on the Netscape bug bounty. And I was like, "Oh, here's why it's not going to work. It's not going to work because trust. Because when a researcher reports something, and we say." that's a duplicate, they won't believe us. We will have no reason for them to believe us. And then they will just go to full disclosure. And so we will have paid the first researcher for the bug, and the second researcher will have disclosed it anyway. And so the industry wasn't ready. By the time Katie was introducing bug bounties at Microsoft, and then it was still another few years before the bug bounty platforms, HackerOne, bug crowd, cobalt, like started coming into, into fruition. Um, the industry had changed so much that it was, it was finally possible. The problem is once you got to the point of the platforms, the bug crowds, the hacker ones, now uh, you have a solution looking for a problem to solve. And, and what's interesting is their platforms are a vulnerability disclosure platform. The bug bounty is just an incentive for the vulnerability disclosure. And so you get all sorts of weird incentives going on for those systems. Um, And we also had a really interesting shift in the industry to eliminate QA teams because we're shifting left. We're shifting left. The developers will do it all. But the developers and a lot of companies, I can't, I'm not going to like out a specific company, But a lot of companies, instead of doing security testing, they stood up a bug bounty and they're calling it good. Right. Um, And it's not because what's great about bug bounties is it's giving somebody that incentive to put up with how slow you are at fixing something, to put up with the bureaucracy of reporting it. In some cases, it's enough money to be the incentive to go do the hard research. But it's not. A pen test, no matter what they tell you, it is not a pen test because a pen test will tell you, here are all the things I looked for. Here's all the places I looked. Here's all the things I did. I only found these three things. And so you have coverage. Whereas with a bug bounty, you don't know what was looked for and not found. You only know what was found. And so you can't say this component of this product is super secure it had no bug bounty reports no maybe nobody looked at it right. and so it's it has value but if you don't have a if you don't have a vulnerability response function if you don't have a team that understands how to ingest those reports assess them prioritize them work with the dev team to get them resolved you just have an influx of bugs that are Getting shunted into your dev system, you're you're creating problems. You need a actual vulnerability response process before you throw a bug bounty into the mix. Otherwise, you know one of the um, one of the textbook examples was uh, when United first stood up their bug bounty, they were overwhelmed with submissions that they could not respond to promptly. And all the researchers that submitted had a terrible experience. They got bad PR out of it. Like it was a lose, lose, lose for United because they weren't ready to actually staff what they had just launched. And now they're in a much better place. Like they learned the hard lessons. They got there, um, you know, but wouldn't it be great to have avoided those hard lessons? <laughs> um, right. So, I, I, it's a long-winded like- answer of saying, I feel like bug bounties have value. I know every company I've worked at, we have gotten some phenomenal bug bounty reports that our internal testers did not find because the internal developers and 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 folks writing test cases, they have the blind spots of, I know what it's used for. I know how it's developed. And so the well, why would anyone try that? Um, sometimes gets
0: missed, um, right? So I think I, like at the minimum, at the minimum, bug bounties have kind of at, at least provided a place for people to report something. A lot of companies didn't even have a security ad email address for bugs to come in. So the evolution of bug bounties and everyone having some sort of platform, some sort of presence on a platform, gives researchers some place to.
1: Oh yeah, uh, it's a, a great one-stop shop, and it's providing.
0: It's prov- and the indemnification is important as well by right? just just providing this indemnification that, you know, you can think and we're not going to do any sort of legal thing. So there's a lot of value there that kind yeah. of balances the playing field. right? Safe Harbor
1: is a, one of the important um, mm-hmm. evolutions. And it's interesting because for a lot of companies, they're like, well, of course we wouldn't take legal action. It's like, right. But you have to understand there's a lot of historical you know, legendary stories of the person that was legally threatened by a company. And those are scary for an individual who knows they can't go up against a vendor. So just just make a safe safe harbor policy, it'll be fine. It's also a heck of a lot easier to be like, are you on Hacker One? are you on BugCrowd? If I can't find you on either of those platforms, I'm probably going to Twitter being like, hey, I have a vulnerability I need to report. Does anybody know somebody at company X? I myself,
0: I that we do see every day,
1: right? I myself have had to go to LinkedIn and be like, "Do I know anyone at Company XYZ <laughs> because we need to report a vulnerability to them?" And I can't find their security page. I can't find that they have a bug bounty anywhere. Um, so it's very, very odd. But one of the other things that I think is really important about bug bounties is that it's opening up security. Uh, career opportunities and income outside of um, the traditional geographies. And so you're seeing folks be able to support a family, an extended family, in parts of the world where maybe they can't get a security job. There are no companies hiring security consultants in, in whatever country they may live in And I'm not going to pick anywhere specific because I'm sure every listener can think of at least five off the top of their head where it's like, well, we don't have any employees there. I don't even know any security companies there, but I know a lot of really good bug bounty researchers come from there. And sometimes they get those job opportunities where they can convert from a bug bounty hunter to a full-time employee for a company. And that matters. That matters for the world and it matters for the industry to create that on-ramp that isn't a paid boot camp, isn't a degree program, doesn't require you to get an H-1B and change countries, um,
0: but you can work in, in security. I 100% agree with all of that. Can I just stick a pin and talk a little bit about the dark side of it? Oh, yeah. kind of created this gig economy where researchers are... I don't want to use the abusive term, but researchers are kind of being abused. Yes. And on, on, on the flip side of it, the entire system is set up for NDAs where even if for bugs that have not been accepted and paid for, you can't do any disclosure. So this, remember the conversation we just had where full disclosure was kind of like the final mm-hmm. uh, uh, nail I had. All that's been removed now. So there's a dark side of this bug bounty world that's of embedded in our systems and society that we really have to acknowledge and attempt to fix in some way too right
1: let's talk about the problems um because there's a lot of them there's a lot of problems for example um when i was at bug crowd i was responsible for the researcher operations team i had a colleague that was the customer operations team and another colleague that was the technical analyst like he oversaw the the folks that actually did the bug triage And the number of times where the customer would not want to pay for something and the researcher is saying, you should pay me for this. So we've got the customer and the researcher operations teams disagreeing and the technical team would have to come in like Solomon and like part the waters and be like, based on the technical risk of this issue, here's what needs to be done. And so that still happens because if a researcher disagrees with a customer on the platform, the platform and and I worked at Bug crowd, but this is true of any gig economy platform. The platform doesn't make money off the workers. They make money from the customers and so there is correct there's a there's a bias in who they're going to support um, in that decision making. The gig economy is a little bit of BS um, and little bit is me being polite. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the gig economy. It absolutely takes advantage of workers, but when you live in a geography where the option is no job or you can do this, or, you know, you're not having a security job anyway, or you can do this, or maybe in some economies and in some geographies you can work in security, but it's the criminal side of security hacking. Like if you can be on the non-criminal side and making money, that is good. But these, you know, really, really low payouts for critical vulnerabilities—that's that's exploitation.
0: Only if you're the first one to report it, right? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, and, there's so many problems and so many yes. things. I mean, we are not gonna we're not gonna litigate all of them individually. I want to put a question to you. Just can now.
1: I throw out a suggestion for a platform, though? If go any go platforms ahead. that are listening. Uh, maybe if one of your customers hasn't fixed a critical bug and it's been six months, maybe they should pay the second finder as well. Like if it's critical, maybe they shouldn't be able to sit on it for two years and just keep racking it up as duplicates. Just an
0: idea. Freshness matters. (laughs) Let me put the question to you this way. Based on everything you've known and all your experience and over the years that you have had in this bug bounty world, outside this bug bounty world, as a product executive dealing with, with researchers and so on, do you think bug bounties as a, let's call it a a, a category, has been a net positive for the industry, has been kind of neutral or a net negative? Taking everything into consideration, all the VC demands, the fact that the bug bounties work for the companies, all of that. Where do you Do you think we've... Do you think we've prog- do you think bug teas have put us on another step on the ladder or help me understand
1: I think they're just another layer to a good security program. So from a from a vendor perspective um, they're just another another layer. I need to run my software component analysis, I need SAS. I need DAST, I need my pen tests, I need compliance, I need my bounty program because it's it's helping me with that Coordinated vulnerability disclosure, like the bounty. Again, the bounty is just the incentive, the thank you, and uh, every though, right? well. And and in all honesty, it is it is incredibly worthwhile investment um, for what what you're getting out of it. If you if you've designed your bounty program well, um, you know you're 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 getting good ROI on it. From a more philosophical perspective, has it been good for the industry? Even with all of the flaws? even uh, even with some of the challenges in terms of the ethics of the gig economy and the fairness or unfairness of the, you know duplicate situation, I also have to you know remind folks, bug bounties, the platforms have only been around for about a decade. They're very, very young. In terms of what they're evolving to be and um there are new platforms coming out still so i think we're going to continue to see evolution here um, and growth and uh you know for a small startup who is trying to figure out how do i receive bug reports from my customers or from security researchers having a bounty platform is is a service that prevents them from having to try to do it from the ground up, without any guardrails, without any help, um, and it, you know, it it does provide the researcher an opportunity to leverage the platform to escalate things. So I think all in all, it is a positive. It is not perfect, and it and it still needs work, just like everything else in security. <laughs>
0: We're running out of time. What is next for you? What are you up to? Um,
1: you, uh, I'm I'm figuring out. Uh, my dance card is full with people I'm talking to right now about what do I want to do next. I uh, so we've talked a lot about response community um, for for the last eighteen months. I've been appsec, not just response, but the whole platform. Um, so everything from security assurance and architecture to recently, just in the last few months, I actually had IT and enterprise security added to my plate as well. And so I've been running a a soup to nuts security program, and I really enjoyed it. But I also really, like, you know, in between bug bounties and uh, doing AppSec, I spent a few years doing open source security as well. And that, yeah, right. that is fascinating because of all the focus on supply chain. And it, it hasn't gotten any better since Heartbleed first happened. Ter- wow, well, that's not true. It's gotten a little better since Heartbleed, but we still have a lot of companies using open source blindly. And uh, so I'm also thinking about maybe going back into that field. We'll see. We'll see.
0: Open source roots, uh, is, a, is, is, is the, uh, specter of being a CISO on your mind? Is that something I'm trying to <laughs> understand if the CISO is still the pinnacle career for a security professional? Mm,
1: so for me, I don't think that's where I want to go because, uh, It just seems, speaking honestly, most CISO roles today seem to be a CISO buried under someone who reports to the CEO. So they're a chief information security officer, but they're not reporting to the CEO in most companies. And they're telling the leadership team and the board of directors, here are the security investments we need to make. And then they're not getting funded for that. Right. Um and then when something goes wrong, they lose their jobs. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, um it's not
0: a nice trade-off to have yeah, to deal with, yeah.
1: Yeah. And in all honesty, uh I really love growing teams and growing people and helping to lift up the next generation of security geniuses. Um I feel like my biggest value is not just securing a company, but building talent um and those people secure the company and many many companies to come ideally so i don't know i think i still want to be building teams we'll
0: see thank you very much yeah this has been amazing. We got to come back. Let's we we, uh, we skipped over like the BlackBerry years. We skipped over like a bunch of things. <laughs> There's still a bunch of topics we could talk about. So uh,
1: well, come and back, we've anything. been talking about doing one of these for a few years. So you know, if Thank nothing so else, much. being a free agent gave me a lot of free time.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Kimberly.
1: Thanks.